Okay. okay, welcome everybody to our panel, Crime from Down Under. My name is Dervla McTiernan. I'm an Irish writer, as you might have guessed from the accent, but I've lived in Australia for eight years, which is why I have the honour of moderating this panel of extremely talented Australian crime writers. Sulari Gentle, Emma Viskich, Jock Sarong and Robert Gott. Sulari, Emma, Jock and Robert are on an American tour right now, sponsored by the Australian Council. And the name of the tour is Crime on the Run. Emma, perhaps you would like to demonstrate the beautiful um, logo, which you will see everywhere you go. <laughs> and I think Sulari was the main instigator of this tour, so I have to ask her. Um, Crime on the Run, Sulari, what are you on the run from? Oh, so many things, Derpa. Um, I, I think... Um, Each other. Yeah, <laughs> quite often. Um, this... Uh, I think uh, crime writers naturally understand, and writers generally n naturally understand uh, the notion of running from publicity, and yet uh, the funny dichotomy of being a writer is while you're an introvert to, to create the worlds that you do in your head, you're, you're then forced to go out into the public and, uh, and promote and, uh, and talk about it and so on, and sometimes that that is a bit of a struggle and uh, so we we came up with the tour so that we could go and support each other while we did it. Um, I think for each of us the idea of coming to the States alone was terrifying. <laughs> um, but we thought, well, you know, if there's four of us, if we are speaking to empty halls, it'll be slightly less lonely. <laughs> and, uh, and so On the Run uh, was concocted as a result of that. Of course, you know, we're also from Australia, which uh, has, rightly or wrongly, is very proud of its convict and bushranger heritage. So <laughs> associating ourselves with the criminal seemed natural. <laughs> but you were a former lawyer, so I thought we could trust you to say the right side of that line. Well, people you can least trust, Dervla, you know that. <laughs> You had quite a, an, an unusual journey to being a writer, because if I, am I right in saying you studied astrophysics at one point? Yeah, I started off studying astrophysics. Um, I, when I first came to Australia, uh, we lived in this little, uh, we lived in Melbourne, which is very hot in the summer, and we'd migrated, we'd come from Africa, which is very temperate, and so we came straight into a Melbourne summer, and we couldn't sleep at night. In those days, it was little brick veneer boxes in the suburbs, and so we used to file out and sleep on the lawn at night uh, because it was too hot to stay inside the house. And my father would point out the constellations in the night sky and tell us stories written into them. And so every time I looked up, I was always filled with this sense of wonder uh, and excitement. And I'd forgotten the cause of it. I just knew that every time I looked up at the night sky, it was amazing and wonderful. And I thought that that meant I should be an astrophysicist. <laughs> and so I trotted off to university to study astrophysics. And to my great disappointment, my professors seemed to think that my beautiful constellations that were so full of stories were balls of gas that could be described by mathematical formula. Um, so I was, I was sorely disappointed and, um, and realized then that what I had fallen in love with was the stories that were written into the stars and not the stars themselves. And you would think at that point I would realize I was supposed to be a writer, but I'm obviously a little bit 
dense in that area, and I, I became a lawyer instead. <laughs> and, and I was a lawyer for many years before I picked up writing as a hobby, as I'm sure many of you have. Uh, just thought you'd do it one day. And I just, within a week, I realized that it was as natural as breathing. And the thought of stopping was like the thought of stopping breathing. And that was it. Uh, I wound back my legal practice because I stopped caring about the law, <laughs> which is dangerous. <laughs> yes, it's not a good idea as a lawyer. <laughs> it's best to stop at that point. Well, I'm not picking on you particularly, Solari, but I'm going to speak to each of you in turn about your books and then broaden the discussion a little bit wider because I think there will be re readers here who haven't read you before. And I'd like to give everybody a chance to kind of learn a little bit about your stories. So, Sidari, you wrote a Greek mythology adventure series, the Hero Trilogy, and a non-series novel, Crossing the Lines, which yep. won the 2018 Ned Kelly. But today I'd really like to talk to you about your long-running long series, The Roland Sinclair Mysteries, which I've read and loved. So, for readers who may not have met Roly yet, how would you describe him and the world he lives in? Um, the Roland Sinclair series is set in the 1930s, in that period between the wars. Um, and in Australia, that was, and the rest of the world, it was a time of particularly high uh, tension and, uh, and social upheaval. The, the, there was a rise in, in communism as the disenfranchised working classes were looking for something um, to give them something back during the Great Depression. Uh, but the establishment wasn't taking that. They were gathering in fascist armies. Um, so it was a wonderfully rich period um, in, term, in terms of material for a writer. Roland Sinclair is a gentleman artist. He's a young man who was born to vast wealth, a pastoral com uh, family. And in Australia, those pastoral families were so rich that they could not possibly spend the money in one generation. <laughs> so, and in the, in the Depression, they just got richer because they bought up everybody else's farms who mm. went under. Um, but, but Roland is slightly different. He's the black sheep of that family because his, his love is art. And so he naturally gravitates to the bohemian left-wing artistic set of the city. And so he is constantly walking that line between the expectations of his family and particularly the, his older brother who is the, uh, the head of that family and, and his friends who tend to be free-spirited, uh, left-leaning, wild young people. Um, and of course, because it's a, it's a crime uh, series, he, he has the unfortunate habit of tripping over dead bodies every now and then, <laughs> <laughs> and enough of a sense of justice that he wants to find what, out what made the dead bodies dead. <laughs> and are all books set in Australia? Uh, no, no, he, he travels because he's a man of means. Um, he, he, uh, he moves from country to country. Um, and of course, you know, writing in the 1930s, the difficulty is that it took so long to travel anywhere. And Australia is a very long way from everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so when I do have him travel, I have to write at least six weeks into, a t into the timeline Time from him to get for him to get to from point A to point B. But he does that every now and then. He takes a cruise and goes on one of those magnificent ocean liners where he can dance and play cards as he travels. <laughs> God, it must be nice. And I compare that to our 15-hour flight from yeah. Sydney. <laughs> there was no dancing on Qantas. Yeah, <laughs> not so much. There is when you get off it, though. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. 
So, Emma, I might turn to you now. Um, you've written two novels, Resurrection Bay and Then Fire Came Down, and your third book, Darkness for Light, will be out early next year. You, um, the books are based around a character called Caleb Zellick. Can you tell us a little bit about Caleb? Yeah, so my books are, are not historical. They're contemporary. I don't ever give a date, but it's now. Um, <laughs> and in 10 years' time, it'll be now as well, hopefully. <laughs> if I've covered the technical side of computers and been a bit vague enough with them. Um, I am very, very drawn to country towns. And country towns in Australia, a little bit like country towns in America, but they tend to be a little more isolated. Um, even in Victoria, where I live, where the distances are much smaller than, say, the outback, you, you can have a four- or five-hour drive to, to somewhere else. Um, so they become very tightly knit. Uh, and the reason I'm drawn to them is because I feel that they're very like families, and I love writing about families. The reason I write crime fiction is because I am fascinated by people. I want to know why they do the things they do, why they don't act in cases. Um, and so I, I like to set either in a quite a close-knit country town, which both my books are set, or in Melbourne, which, although it's a population of maybe five million, still feels a bit like a country town. You run up against the same people all the time. Um, so I set my books between the fictional town of Resurrection Bay, which, strangely enough, is a little bit like the town Jock lives in, uh, but definitely isn't. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and, and the city of Melbourne. Uh, and my character is a, a PI, a private investigator or a fraud investigator, um, who happens to be profoundly deaf. Um, and he lip reads, he uses Australian Sign Language, which is quite different from American Sign Language. Um, and the, my journey to writing him was not that straightforward. I didn't wake up one morning and think, I'm going to write a deaf character. I had started a novel and wasn't quite sure where this character had come from and why I was writing him. And then I started recognising aspects of his behaviour from a girl I had gone to school with who was profoundly deaf. And I met her when I was maybe nine or ten, uh, about the age that you really start understanding that other people have different lives from you. And as I say, I'm a people watcher. Um, and she had quite a profound um, impact on the way I looked at other people and started seeing that their lives were different and their experiences were different. So I also had another aspect to this, which was that I'm a family of immigrants. Um, my grandparents migrated to Australia. My father didn't speak English, oh, from Croatia. My father didn't speak English until he went to school. My grandparents never learned to speak English. They lived in quite a, a Slav enclave. I, as was quite common at the time, didn't learn to speak Croatian. So I couldn't communicate with my grandparents. And they are my only grandparents. My grandparents on my mother's side died long before I was born. So I've always had this sense of um, uh, frustration with lack of communication and, and I think probably quite a deep sense of loss as well. Um, and also seeing that they were quite uh, isolated as well, very happy in their environment, but stepping outside was extremely stressful. So there are all these little uh, touchstones or uh, in the writing business, sometimes we call it therapy. 
<laughs> in that you, you write your experiences in um, and it does become a way of exploring your own thoughts and emotions and ideas. So once I thought that could make a fantastic character for a crime novel, um, I could really get some help. <laughs> I, I then thought, no, I'm not going to do that. That is a terrifying idea and I put the manuscript away for months. But Caleb's character kept coming back into my mind. I'd be sitting at the traffic lights thinking, what would Caleb do in this situation? What would Caleb do if a car was tooting? Would he be able to hear it? What would Caleb do if someone was rude to him? And he's, he just kept coming back. I couldn't get him out of my brain. So I sat down and I thought, well, okay, now I need to start doing some research. And research is sort of the wrong word. Research sounds very clinical. And I definitely did clinical research in that I read a lot of biographies, I read a lot of blogs and memoirs. But what I actually did is I went out and I engaged with the communities. Um, I, I, I started to, I learned how, and I say, I tried to learn how to lip read. <laughs> I walked around with earbuds in my ears and went to cafes. And, um, yeah, it was quite the experience, and I'm appalling lip reader. <laughs> like, appalling, there is a scene in a cafe in Resurrection Bay where Caleb gets a really strange coffee. That was actually a real experience of mine. <laughs> so, so if you read it and go, oh, I, I drink black coffee, um, so if you end up reading the scene, you'll know why <laughs> I had problems with this coffee. Um, and then I, I, but I wasn't sure if Caleb was going to be able to you, well, whether he would use sign language or not, the deaf community in Australia um, is quite small. It's very strong, it's very proud, it's a very tight-knit community, but it is very small. Most people who are deaf are born to hearing parents. It's uh, maybe 96 or 7% of deaf children are born to hearing parents. So most people in Australia who are deaf do not sign. So, really? Yeah. I, I, so I thought, well, he could lip-read. I'd done a lot of uh, research on lip-reading. I've met a lot of people who lip read. Um, but I thought I'd just try it out. I'll try a short course to begin. Five, ten minutes into that, I went, he has to lip read. It, um, it, it was a whole different side to his personality, whereas lip reading is exhausting <coughs> and hard. Uh, sign language is incredibly freeing and expressive and mm. beautiful. Mm. Um, it would also show a different side of his relationships with other people. So the people who love him sign with him. They might not sign well, but they at least attempt. So it was able to show a whole different side and him free and easy. So he's very in enclosed the rest of the time. Uh, life is um, it's very structured and he, he's quite the outsider because I, yeah. I love writing about outsiders. But the rest of the time he's very free with his sign language. And I then went on to study it. Um, in um, TAFE and went quite down the rabbit hole of, uh, I'd imagine of research. It, it yeah. would be fascinating. As, as a writer, I'm very interested in this idea of having a deaf character and the challenges that he has in his daily life become characteristics of the novel in a way. And you, you've used that very well because we almost assume what his next action will be and then stumble into the fact that, well, actually it has to be different in this case. So yeah. three books in... Mm. Is that now more of a gift or a challenge as a writer? It's absolutely a gift. It started off, one of the reasons why I didn't want to write it initially, well, there were two reasons. One is that I'm writing out from outside my experience and there are great responsibilities that come from that. If you are writing from outside your cultural background, you have a responsibility to do it well and for the right reasons as well. Um, and... 
Caleb is in no way representative of the deaf community, but people could see him that way, mm. so I knew I had to get it right. And the other reason I was hesitant is that the technique of writing a deaf character is really challenging. How do you write sign language? Um, how do you write missing words without it boring the reader? So I had to make decisions like how, how would I translate sign? And in the end, I decided, well, I would translate it as if I was translating French. I would just put it into correct English. Mm. Except if someone is signing badly. So his, his partner, Frankie, signs very badly. Frankie's sign language abilities are the same as mine. <laughs> so really good for a three or four year old. If that three or four year old can swear. Really well. Um, so her sign, when I translate it, is very clunky. But the gift side of it is that I am incredibly visually unobservant. I'm very oral. My first career was as a classical musician. So I enter the world, I enter writing by eavesdropping, quite frankly. If you've been standing near me, I have been listening to your conversation. <laughs> Um, As so you did I, at the football last night. I did. I moved closer to people to overhear. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Dobbing me in. Um, so I, I didn't know how I was going to uh, come across all those challenges, but he has made me so much more observant. Mm -hmm. And the language, instead of dialogue being um, an unimportant part of the book, and I love writing dialogue, it became a major part. So it's become an absolute gift to the extent where when I read other books, sometimes I go, well, the character couldn't possibly understand that. He's not looking at their lips. Uh, and then I go, well, he's not deaf. This character can actually hear. <laughs> I can see how it can get confusing. Jacques, I'm going to come to you. Um, you've written four novels, Quota, The Rules of Backyard Cricket, On the Java Ridge, and your fourth preservation. They're all very different in terms of their time, their setting, and their voice. Aren't you ever tempted to take it easy and write a series? <laughs> well, I may have started writing a series. Really? Uh, so I've written a sequel to Preservation, to the latest book. And um, I, I'm in that dreadful stage that writers here will all know where um, it's gone to my publishers. And, and right at the moment that my editor has gone on annual leave. Oh, no. So um, I'm waiting for something, for some signal from the heavens as to how it's gone. But um, there is the prospect that preservation will turn into a series okay. because um, the book, preservation is a historical novel and it's about this little group of islands. If you can think of a map of Australia in your head, the first thing that always happens is that everybody forgets Tasmania, which is the little dot underneath the southeast corner. And in between the little dot that is Tasmania and the enormous continent, there's this tiny little cluster of islands and preservation is a story about a shipwreck in those islands in 1797. And a lot of strange things happened in the 50 years after 1797 in these tiny little islands. They're, they're literally just boulders sticking up out of the sea. Um, and, and I'm interested to explore the ways in which those islands affected all of Southeast Australia's history. Mm -hmm. So the shipwreck resulted in several really important things. One was that um, the survivors of it made first contact with Aboriginal people in what is now New South Wales, and most of the survivors were Indian people. They were Lascar sailors who had been hired for this voyage. So the first contact was not between British soldiers and Aborigines, it was between Indian people and Aborigines. Um, they had to walk to safety an enormous distance, and in the process, they found seals, which led to our first export industry, which was seal skins. Um, 
they found coal, and, and that again was exported. They, they, they were actually, they, someone diarised that they were sitting, making a campfire on the beach and that they were throwing lumps of coal on it, and that turned into this big industry. Um, and the most important thing they found was Bass Strait, which is the body of water between Australia and Tasmania, which mm. is really important to navigation. Um, so all of these things spun out from that discovery. And, and what happened next over the 50 years was that um, people started to settle the islands in order to hunt seals. And they became this kind of lawless, autonomous colony out there in the, in the rocks. Um, and then after that, missionaries started rounding up Aboriginal people and they were looking for a place to relocate them and try to Christianise and Europeanise them. Mm -hmm. It was this sort of idiotic, noble thinking which ended up in disaster. And the place they chose, um, through a series of coincidences, was the same group of islands. Mm -hmm. So by 1847, they tried to settle Aboriginal people in the Furneaux Islands and failed miserably. Mm -hmm. um, and they then, after that, that very, very active 50 years, the place went quiet for almost a century. And, and it's still a very, very quiet place. So I was really drawn to it. That's yeah. why I think there's this series in it. It's an absolute... And actually, I want to ask you a, a question just purely um, for myself. Is Charlotte in the next book? Uh, oh, dear. It's a hell of a spoiler. I love her. So I want can to I, can I say there is discussion of Charlotte in the next book? Okay. <laughs> I'll ask you that one later. Um, you have one profoundly evil character in this book. Is, is, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Is it Fig? It is Fig. Fig. Yes. So he is the kind of character that stays with you for a very long time. I don't feel like I've read him before. He was very fresh to me in a, in a, in a disturbing kind of way. Where did he come from? Um, I think Fig does exist in, in literature and in culture, and I think he's, he's an embodiment of our nightmares. Um, Fig is one of the survivors, and what I did was, um, everywhere in this book I've tried very, very hard to stay close to the real history. All of the dates and most of the names and the events themselves are all the things that happened in this shipwreck. But one serious departure was that I took a blank canvas, a man called John Bennett, for a start I thought it was a pretty boring name, <laughs> and I, I have inhabited him with this guy called Fig. And when I originally wrote the book, Fig was called Lamprey, because I liked the idea of him attaching himself parasitically to the survivors yeah. and kind of drawing their blood out. Yeah. Um, my editor told me that was a fairly heavy-handed metaphor. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so Fig, um, Fig is nasty, but he's nasty in subtle ways at first, and, and he's not quite human. And yes. what I was thinking of, first of all, I think, in making Fig was Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. Yeah. Um, if you've read that novel, there's a character in there called Judge Holden, and... Blood Meridian is essentially a western, of course. There's men walking across the prairie. They're doing terrible things. And they find this man sitting on a salt pan, and he's seven feet tall, entirely hairless and nude, and he's asleep. And their approach wakes him up, and, and he gets dressed and joins them and sort of attaches himself to this group of walkers. Mm. And it turns out he doesn't get hungry or thirsty. He doesn't get any older. He knows an awful lot about everything, mm. and he's never affected by any crisis that affects these people. And, and it's a weird kind of evil that, that almost transcends ordinary human lives. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's, it's not quite the idea of immortality, but it's something very close to it. Mm. And that was what I was looking for with Fig, that he's not troubled by the ordinary stuff like thirst. Um, mm. And yet, by the same token, he walks along the high tide line of the beaches and picks things up and gnaws on them to see if they're edible. Um, 
And the more I played yeah. with those ideas about a character, the spookier he got. He's incredibly spooky. He's one of the reasons that you turn the pages because you just want to see what he's going to do next. It just gets worse. <laughs> it does. In the best possible um, way. Yeah. Um, your books have also been award winners, like our other panellists. Quota won the Ned Kelly, The Rules of Backyard Cricket, was uh, shortlisted for an Edgar and the Victorian Premier's Awards. And also, you won one slightly controversial prize. <laughs> the Staunch Prize, have you guys heard of that over here? The Staunch Prize is a British um, crime fiction prize, which was started in the last couple of years, and it specifically looks to award books um, that do not feature any scenes where women have been beaten, stalked, sexually exploited, raped, or murdered. So none of these scenes can be What's, what's interesting about the prize is it hasn't been universally embraced by all crime writers, some of whom are a little offended um, at the, the suggestion that, that I think the, the founder of the prize has made that um, you know, if you include these scenes, it's exploitative of women. And the point that some of the crime writers make is that, well, it depends on how you write them. So I just thought I would put you on the spot, Jock, as the winner, and see, ask you, how do you feel about the prize generally? <laughs> what's your view on that? Right. Well, it's funny. I, this sounds like a terrible name drop, but I was asked to explain this yesterday by the BBC. The reason being that they've just announced the shortlist for this year's award. Um, so I, I had to think about, okay, where, where do I stand on these things? And th there's a couple of very important prefaces here. One is um, that when you win an award, you're suddenly thrust accidentally into speaking about the award. So I don't know how I might have thought um, had I not won the award. The other thing is I'm very conscious here that this is an award... Um, about women. It's not an award for women, but it is an award principally about women. Therefore, I'm sitting here as a bloke doing the mansplain. Um, <laughs> Doubly awkward. <laughs> so, having those two very important disclaimers in mind, um, there is the point of view, which I think was articulated by Val McDermott, that um, violence against women is, is an integral part of all of our lives and it's extremely important and for literature to turn its back on that extremely important issue is literature being artificial and not quite full um, in, in a human sense. So um, it, it's not a good thing to say we shouldn't write about violence against women. On the other hand, um, I think crime fiction has, has slid into some fairly lazy tropes over the years mm. where women's bodies are used as um, essentially a blank canvas for expressing violence. And I think um, that is a thing to point out and to talk about. Mm. Um, and so really, I see the award as being a call to do better. Mm. Um, think about why you wrote this female character, what were you trying to achieve, are you properly expressing a human life here, mm. or are you just doing the damsel in distress, mm. which, which yeah. is fairly thin. Yeah. I think it started an interesting conversation, if nothing yeah. else. Yeah, I do yeah. too. Which yeah. is great. I'm going to let you off the hot seat now, Jack. <laughs> talking to Robert for a second. Robert, I meant to ask you this before I asked you publicly, but what yeah. the hell? Um, <laughs> I read somewhere that you've written 97 books for children. Is that true, or was it a typo? No, it's, it's, um, it's incorrect. It's 98. <laughs> wow. But you've also written two different crime series in your spare time. Yeah. Um, the series that starts with the Holiday Murders and the William Power series. How would you describe the two series and the differences between them? Well, oh, look, first of all, thank you so much for coming to this session. We are so conscious of the fact that you haven't got a clue who we are. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much. Well, 
We just think that is weird. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, I was in the position when I, I... I was one of those people who didn't want to write a crime novel. I wanted to have written a crime novel. <laughs> and that meant that I had to, well, write one. And I'm essentially despite my publication history, a profoundly lazy person. Mm -hmm. And I did not want to write a contemporary crime fiction because there's too much hard work. There's so much you have to know. And now that everyone has seen CSI, everyone is an amateur expert on everything. And so if you get, for example, the, uh, the progression of insects on a dead body incorrect, you'll get a letter from someone saying, I think you'll find the blowfly comes two days after the coffin. <laughs> and P.S. I threw your book across the room. <laughs> so, so I grew up, um, I was born in a state of Australia called Queensland, which is in the north of the country. And Australia is, is about geographically, I don't know if you're aware of this, geographically it's about the same size as the United States. So it has both tropical zones and temperate zones and sub-temperate zones. I grew up in Queensland, which is tropical and subtropical, in a, in a small town on the coast. And everyone who grows up in this town is aware of something that happened in 1942 during World War II. I also don't know if you know that during World War II, more than one million American soldiers were stationed in Australia to fight the Pacific and the North Pacific War. So, um, in this town, this uh, girl who was 21 years old went missing, and she was found three weeks later dissolving in the town's water supply. And that, that meant that everyone in the town had been oh. drinking her and oh, wow. brushing their teeth with her oh, and you know, washing their hair with her, and that included my parents. and. I thought that was sensational. <laughs> that, that my, my spending three weeks with this man. <laughs> my parents were cannibals. <laughs> okay, and I can we, see. We were, I was never sure growing up whether that was a true story or, 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 or just an apocryphal story, but it was actually true. It was um, a true story. And uh, so I thought, well, okay, that, that is the crime, although it turned out not to be a crime. It was a very sad, it was a, uh, she took her own life because she was depressed. Um, but I decided I would set my novel, the first series of novels, in the 1940s, because World War II in Australia, as it was in America, was a very interesting time domestically mm -hmm. for um, the people who sort of carried on the war here on the, on the, in the towns and cities. So that's where I set the novel. It meant I could do the research that I love doing, which is historical mm. research. So if you were going to describe your series by, by reference to any American crime fiction, what would you, what would you relate it to? Well, the, 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 that series, the first series, which is, features this... Um, what I needed in the first series was a character. I settled on someone who was self-absorbed, not very bright, vain, <laughs> not very observant... <laughs> And I thought... <laughs> what are you all okay. thinking? <laughs> I can hear you thinking names. <laughs> I thought, okay, let's make this guy an actor. <laughs> Good call. The depressing thing was that when I'd finished that first draft, I showed it to my mother, and uh, she said, That's, it's very good, darling, but you don't think it's a little bit 
autobiographical. <laughs> anyway, so that's that series, and it's a, it's a Blackley comic series. Uh, my publisher requested a darker series after three of those. So again, because I'm lazy, I still kept the World War II. Barbara, just to, just to interject, yeah. tell us the time, just so we know which, which is which. Willpower. Is the darker. Is this comedy series. It's the comedy series. Yeah. Hence the name Willpower. Okay. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the darker series begins with the holiday murders, okay. the Port Ferry murders and the autumn murders. And they're set at the same time, but they're much, much darker. They're not, they're not funny at all. They're extremely unpleasant, and, you know, that's what I call entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> Don't think you're alone in this particular group of people. Tell us about your approach to research. Um, we have this astonishing thing in Australia. I don't know if there's equivalent in America or not, but the National Library of Australia has digitalised every single newspaper from settlement up to the 1980s. So you can, and there are thousands of newspapers around Australia, because Australia is a very big place. And that is the best place for research. You can just call up uh, any I, particular day of the year, in any year, and the, these newspapers will be there. I think, I think you have newspapers.com, but you have to pay for newspapers.com. Trove is a free... It's a free, every, yeah. Thing, so. yeah. And it's amazing. Yeah. And it gives you a sense of history because it's got all the cinema advertisements, the clothing advertisements, all of those sorts of things mm. which are so... So is accuracy very important to you? Do you put story first or accuracy first? Story first, accuracy second. second. Well, speaking about historical fiction, given that three of you have written historical fiction, I'll I'll ask this question of Robert, but if anybody else would like to add something. Um, It's about the role of women in historical fiction. Hilary Mantel has criticized some writers, and I think she did call out women in particular for what she called retrospective empowerment which is the tendency to give female characters more agency than history suggests is strictly accurate. What is your yeah, This view is on really, that? really difficult because it is difficult to write a woman, say in the 1940s in my case, who is a modern woman. She is not a modern mm. woman. Now, I have got round this by um, giving... I wanted to write about women in the police force in Australia. I know nothing about the situation in America, but in the 1940s in Australia, there were only a handful of women in the police force. And they were not required to wear a uniform because there was no expectation that they would ever be promoted. So they didn't need a uniform to put extra bars on their shoulders. So I wanted to put a woman in that position just to show how misogynistic and ghastly this situation was. Mm -hmm. Now, the woman I've chosen is not exactly what the young people call woke. But, um, (laughs) But she is fiercely independent. She's the victim of prejudice, um, and she battles against that every day of her working life. Mm. But I wanted to represent a a woman struggling against Mm. the the, um, patriarchy. (laughs) Um, Interestingly, because I'm writing 10 years earlier than Robert, the the 20s, 30s, you did have modern women. They did exist, and they did fight Mm. against the... And Look, I I suspect you probably had them in every era. It just depended on... Some, some eras being more willing to tromp them down than others. Uh, but in the, in the 20s and 30s, we, we saw the rise of the suffragist movement and you, you saw things like alternate religion, um, the Theosophical Society, which is very egalitarian and so on. So um, I, I needed a... I had a, a very wealthy, very almost indulged and spoiled man at the top. He was a nice guy, but he had everything he ever wanted. 
And uh, when I started writing this series, I thought, I need him to have a love interest, but I don't want to write a sex scene. So I thought, well, if I give him a love interest that's unattainable, then I can get around it. <laughs> well, so, why don't you want to write a sex scene? Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so Edna, Edna came into fruition because I had to create uh, the kind of woman that would not only make Roland Sinclair fall in love with her, but would keep him in love with her for several books. And it seemed to me that when he was surrounded with people that pandered to him, that agreed with him, uh, that let him off the hook, a woman who wouldn't have him, who was independent, who wanted her own life and her own career, would be just the kind of woman that he would fall hopelessly in love with. Um, and they did exist, particularly in the artistic community. Mm. When you were writing Charlotte, Jock, I mean, she's suffering with an illness uh, for a large part, but I won't say anything more about that, but she's still very much fighting for her place in the world, and, and it, she's very independent. Yeah. But there's some challenge in that for her. So was this, was this issue of historical accuracy on your mind when you wrote her? Yeah, it was, because I wanted to push her as a character as far as I could, um, but I didn't want to make her a modern woman for the same reasons, I suppose, that Roberts expressed. Mm-hmm. Um, Charlotte is... Uh, th- there's a sleuth in, in preservation. There's a lieutenant in Sydney who's trying to work out whether these survivors of a shipwreck are telling him the truth or not. And I think, like a lot of, of sleuthing stories, it's very useful sometimes to have a foil to the thinking of the detective. So in this case, um, Joshua Grayling, the sleuth, is married to Charlotte. And Charlotte... Um, is probably a bit smarter than Joshua and constantly questions his assumptions about what happened. But the other thing that's going on with Charlotte is Sydney at the time was 4,000 people perched on the very, very edge of this gigantic continent. Aboriginal people were still very much in charge of the whole place and they were crowded around the small settlement and indeed they were walking through the the settlement every day. And um, the authorities really as a measure of political control, had made very, very clear to everybody that if you leave the bounds of this settlement, we can't guarantee your safety and you may very well be speared. Now, some of that was reality. There was an active insurgency going on at the time, but some of it was also political management. You know, if you're scared of the bush, you won't go out there and we know where you all are. Charlotte has this thing about walking into the bush, Mm. and, and she does it during the day while her husband's at work. And before he comes home, she changes all of her clothes and washes them and pretends nothing happened. But she particularly loves to walk out and deliberately get herself lost um, just in order to feel that kind of abandon of being lost mm. because she lives such a tightly contained life. Um, as the wife of an officer, there would be social expectations on the way she dressed and the way she spoke and everything that she did. And like all nosy neighbours, there'd be people watching. And... I wanted her to really chafe against that and Mm. to hate it and to be trying to escape all the time, even within the bounds of a loving marriage. Mm. And I think that that's an interesting discussion about marriages in general, Mm. that people still have to assert their own identities Mm. in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's fascinating. Well, this is a, a panel about Australian crime fiction. So, Emma, I'm going to put you in the hot seat this time. Does Australian crime fiction have a common characteristic and how would you compare it with American crime fiction? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Easy one. How long have I got? Um, I think there's there's two things that are probably 
quite Australian. Um, the, the, so Australian crime fiction, as you can probably notice already, is, is quite a broad canvas. Um, we've got everything from cosies to very dark noir. Um, I, I would say the sense of humour is, is one of the things that is quite uniquely Australian. Um, one of the problems with being Australian... <laughs> One of the problems of being Australian, um, our sense of humour doesn't always travel well. <laughs> I have travelled the world offending people unwittingly. The sense of humour in Australia is often built around snark. It's built around offending your best mate. So if you're really close to someone, the most affectionate thing you can do, usually with a few really good swear words, is, um, yeah, call them Put bad them names. Put them down. <laughs> Put them down. You're all agreeing with this, yeah? Yeah. 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 Um, we and try our best, yeah. yeah. we really do. We really do. I think we might move in a very different circle. <laughs> <laughs> Jock agrees with me. <laughs> and so I think often with, with Australian crime fiction, even when it's quite dark, and I, I write quite dark, uh, crime fiction. I love the uh, flip side of having the humour. So it often gets with me and, and a lot of the books. Uh, it's a very tense moment. It's been very dark. Maybe there's been viscera and cannibalism, mm. and then someone will crack a really inappropriate joke. And I think that that tends to be a, a little bit. Mm. Um, the other thing, and it, maybe it's actually not just Australian crime fiction, because it, it certainly happens in American crime fiction too, but it, it seems to be very consistent, is that Australia prides itself on uh, not listening to authority, mm. on, on being the larrikin spirit. We are one of our most famous uh, figures, which our Edgar Awards are named after, the Ned Kelly Awards, is a bushranger. He was a robber. He killed policemen. And we He's our him. hero. He's our hero. Yeah, yeah. He, he was hanged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, you can, there's a love-hate relationship. Well, my, my little boy is eight, and he recently studied Ned Kelly, and he is fascinated. And, and whatever they're teaching him in school, he thinks he's the best thing ever. Yeah, huge shootout. Yeah, yeah. He's our hero. So, so I think those two things seem to be quite consistent, except in uh, Robert's books because um, he obviously lives in different circles. <laughs> no, your, your larrikin spirit is definitely there in your books. I think the other thing is that Australians are a little bit more embracing of losers. We actually oh, like yeah. losers. Yeah. The second place getter is our hero. Um, and I think, I think that's a little bit of a cultural difference. Yeah. Um, so we don't mind if the detective fails to be the one to actually... Uh, nab, the bad guy. nab the bad guy, or if the bad guy wins occasionally, it's not really a problem for us because losing is something that we think is a natural part of life, and, and we're so, really good at it too. And, and, and we we like the valiant effort. We pay for the valiant effort. <laughs> you know, it's funny That's you say right. that, Solara, because last night we, Jock and I, went to a high school football game last yeah. night. I've never been to a football yeah. game. I know, no, I still don't know what happened. <laughs> we got there. I'm sorry, North Dallas lost. We got there and the other side of the, uh, the, the grandstand, the bleachers, was almost empty. And we said, oh, should we go over there? They're the underdogs. We should support them. We literally had this conversation. It was too far to go, so we didn't. But, but. Okay, I'm going to send it out to the audience in just a minute, but I have one more question. This one's for everybody, so I might start at the far end of the table with you, Jock. Okay. I know there are a lot of writers in the room, so what is the worst piece of advice about writing you've ever been given? 
That's easy. I got told to stop. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I, like Solari, I was working for many years as a lawyer, and um, I went through these awful years of juggling whether to keep being a lawyer and to try and write in my spare hours or whether to actually turn things over and walk away from law. And this went on for quite a painful long time. And I remember ringing a guy I admired a great deal, I still admire a great deal, and saying, look, I'm thinking about jumping here. And he said, oh, mate, for God's sake, don't. <laughs> It'll never work. Um, and, and I think, like anything you love, A, there's an inevitability going on that ultimately it just comes out of you and you can't stop it. Mm. But B, that if you apply enough love to it, then the chances of it succeeding in a practical way are pretty good. They're not overwhelming, but mm. there's a strong enough chance that it's worth doing. Mm. And um, so I think the flip side of the bad advice, which he still laughs about, is that um, it's very much worth giving a go. Yeah, absolutely. Anna? Uh, probably uh, someone... Um, I didn't know anyone in the publishing business before I got published. didn't know any writers or anything. Um, and uh, I, I, ha I was at a party and I met a publisher. I was like, oh my God, give me some advice. And she said, well, don't write Australian crime fiction. No one's interested. Yeah. <laughs> Tell that to Jean Harper. Yeah. <laughs> Robert? Uh, this wasn't from a publisher, but I, I have um, heard occasionally, and this is terrible advice, that as a writer you should try and write for a particular reader. And I think that is terrible advice. I, I write simply because I love the process of writing and essentially I write to entertain myself. Mm. And if it entertains anyone else, that's an absolute bonus. But trying to second guess what a reader might enjoy mm. is, I, I think it's disastrous for, for the freedom of your own writing. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I, Stephen King talks about writing for his ideal reader, but I think he has his wife in mind. And of course she's a writer too, so I think that's different. Yeah. Silari, for you? Um, look, I have two really bad pieces of advice. <laughs> one, one was write what you know. Um, yeah. Write what you're interested in. Um, and if you are engaged and interested in what you're, you're digging into, that'll come through in your writing. Um, if you write what you know, you're just writing a thesis. Um, the other one was a friend of mine told me that... Uh, in, in order to write well, you've got to treat it like a job and get dressed and put on makeup before oh. you. you know, that's, that's really bad advice. <laughs> All of my novels have been written in pajamas. <laughs> I think that wins the spot prize for the worst piece of advice for sure. Okay, I'm going to pass it out to you guys for any questions. We have one right here. What uh, Australian yeah, sorry, crime writer, past or present, has inspired us all? I'd say that. I would not for an Australian crime writer. I would opt for, in my case, James M. Cain. I think James M. Cain is just this glorious, non-correct, politically correct genius. His stuff is, is um, difficult to read from a modern point of view because it, it is riddled with misogyny and violence, but it's just superb. Cain and Chandler, the two, for me, are the two great uh, inspirations for crime. I'm going to answer the question that was asked about <laughs> <laughs> um, That's my, never a good idea. Uh, I draw my inspiration from a, a lot of the contemporary crime writers because I wasn't, I didn't come from a background of, of 
uh, immersion in the crime writing community. I was, I was a lawyer and happily being a lawyer, and then all of a sudden I found myself a crime writer. But the people I draw my inspiration from are wonderful Australian crime writers like Marla Nunn, uh, Pam Newton, um, I'm trying to think of those that, uh, this Peter Jane Harper, Dervla yeah. McTiernan, who, though she tells you she's Irish, she's now Australian. <laughs> <laughs> I have both passports. So, um, so um, in, in the Australian crime writing community, at the moment there is some extraordinary work being done. Mm. Um, and so I always look to my colleagues uh, for inspiration whenever I'm feeling like I need to check myself and pace myself. Mm, yeah. I, mean, uh, I, I too, I love the, the old uh, noir, you know, Chandler and people like that, but I, I, like Solari, there, there's a, such an amazing um, group of crime writers in Australia at the moment, the contemporaries, it's Gary Disher, Eva mm. Clifford, mm. everyone at this yep. table. Um, oh, I'm just... Uh, Malanun, as you say. Yes, yeah. extraordinary. Um, if you look at the um, lists for the David Awards and the Ned mm -hmm. Kelly Awards, you look at the long list even, uh, you would just get this wealth of writers. Um, for me, there are three true crime writers writing at the moment who are really worth watching. One is Helen Garner, mm. who most people yes. I think would know, um, very senior now in our scene. Um, second is Sarah Krasnerstein. Mm -hmm. And the third is Chloe Hooper. So yep. all three um, write about true crime events in Australia, but with A, a particularly Australian slant, and B, just with beautiful, beautiful language. Very mm -hmm. economical writers, um, very moving but never voyeuristic. Mm. Yeah, I, I adored Sarah Krasenstein's Trauma Cleaner. It's fantastic. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Sure. Brilliant. so thank you very much. Anybody else have a question? Yes. Yeah, well, of course, we still have as our head of state the Queen. So it's a, we're a parliamentary democracy, but um, uh, Britain has no legal authority in Australia, but she's still our head of state. And so there's, there's arguments going all the time about whether we should become a republic mm. and what sort of republic. But uh, is there affection for England? Maybe, but that, doesn't, it, that no longer represents what Australia is, because mm. Australia is an astonishingly multicultural mm. country. Mm. Yeah, we've... yeah, we're a country of immigrants, basically. Mm. So, I, I reckon yeah. we got two decent things from the Poms. Uh, we've got, <laughs> we got the common law and we've got cricket. Cricket, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> As an Irish person living in Australia, I think Australian culture is very different from British culture. Mm -hmm. um, just fundamentally different, much more comfortable for the Irish. I think we're more similar. Yeah. There's another question down here. Oh, that is a great yeah. question. He Arthur is rarely read. Yeah. Oh, who is Arthur Up? How is Arthur Upfield viewed in the Australian crime writing community? Arthur Upfield was writing novels in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and his uh, protagonist was a an Aboriginal detective whose name was um, Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, I would say that he is no longer read at all. So he has kind of just disappeared. He, he, he was, of course, at the time, you know, Arthur Upfield wasn't a, an Indigenous man, and it was a, a white man writing what he thinks an Indigenous man was, and it, that's fairly obvious now with hindsight. At the time, when there was nobody else writing Indigenous people, it probably was 
um, very forward thinking. I do know that the upfield books are very popular in Europe. Mm. Um, so it seems to still have popularity outside Australia. We've moved past them. Yeah. Oh, everybody reads American yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's Stop yeah. writing. <laughs> Give us a chance. <laughs> we, we, we get, um, it seems to be, we, we're halfway between the American and the British culture in, in some ways in that we get stuff equally from you, more and more probably from America with television shows and books, mm -hmm. but we get both. And we also read English and American, so we can read American... Uh, spelling and UK spelling. <laughs> we are very yeah. clever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, for me, Saul Bellow um, and Don DeLillo. Oh, uh, yeah. But um, one of the great things about being here is I'm discovering all of these names that I need to now frantically yeah. read to keep up. Yeah, I've yeah. quite a collection. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm very old-fashioned. I love Fitzgerald. Uh, yeah, I love Fitzgerald as well. Um, but in contemporary context, uh, Patricia Cornwell I used to read uh, a lot of, obsessively, <laughs> um, and Jeffrey Deaver. Mm -hmm. um, Jeffrey Mark Hurwitz. I is it Mark Hurwitz? Hurwitz? Greg, 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 sorry. Uh, Greg Hurwitz's books I, I love. Oh, and Megan Abbott. Megan Abbott's fabulous. Megan Abbott's great. And yeah. um, oh, I might be about to be, do amazing faux pas. Is Annie Proulx American or Canadian? She's Canadian. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love Don DeLillo as well. Yeah, Megan Abbott is... Uh, and, and, you know, go back to Chandler and that in the old yeah. days. And in the more cosy line, uh, Reese Bowen's books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Terrific. very good. Michael Connolly is probably top of my list. Yeah. Um, and Liz even though Elizabeth George writes books set in the UK, I just adore her writing. Mm -hmm. She's yes. fabulous. Tana French is Irish, but she's kind of... I always think of her as Irish-American. So maybe because she's so popular over mm -hmm. here. Yeah. Um, oh, and Elizabeth Strout. Oh, they're all shy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How do we feel about question. the Booker Prize being opened up to American authors? Well, the English have a problem with it being opened up to Australian authors. Mm -hmm. John, yeah. oh, Emma, sorry. Uh, I have no opinion. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I mean, because we are outsiders as well from, from the UK, so, yeah. 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 I'm still struggling with Dylan winning the Nobel Prize. Who was it? There was an, there was a, an American writer who, who put out a little hilarious tweet saying she was looking forward to her Grammy. <laughs> I, I think we have time for one more question over here. Part of the enduring appeal of crime fiction, if you read Michael Connolly, it's L.A. If you read Ian Rankin, you're in Edinburgh, and you get to go to these places. Yeah. You know, Three Pines. Yeah. Yes. And a yeah. sense of place does seem to be something that we talk about a lot in Australia amongst yeah. the crime writing community. Um, and because Australia is so vast... Uh, everyone feels very protective of their area that they're, and they, they feel that they need to um, really embed the novel and so that the, the, the area that it's in does become another character. It's a bit of a cliche to say, but it, it really does bounce back on what's happening in the area. Mm. Plus, everything's out to kill you in Australia. So. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. One of the, um, one of the interesting things about the, the comparison in geography is that Australia doesn't really have a Midwest. With no. The vast majority of our population is clinging to this tiny little green strip around the edges. <laughs> so we spend an inordinate amount of time talking about the outback, but the fact is we're all just sort of 
hungry I on the coast. I live in the outback. <laughs> <laughs> I'm authentic. <laughs> there is a lady here with one more question. <laughs> just makes us tough. <laughs> it's, it, it's funny because it's our home and yeah. I, you know, I, I've often had uh, American friends talk to me about the snakes and the spiders and so on. And I live, I live uh, in the country. So my boys from when they were little would go out on what they call bushwalks. So they'd go bush straight into the, into the wilderness. And we would always, you know, they were five or six, and we would just tell them, talk loudly so the snakes know you're coming. <laughs> and, you know, when it's your home, you, you, you tend to just uh, work around it. It's not, it's not as uh, terrifying. But we've got to remember when we're writing that for normal people, it's terrifying. But also the reality is that in, in Australia, people do not get bitten or taken by sharks. It's very rare. For sharks, they do. It's not snakes. It's still very rare. Not in Melbourne, they don't get taken much <laughs> According to the statistics, the most dangerous animal in Australia is the horse. More yeah. people die from horse accidents than from any other uh, natural cause of, yeah. uh, you know, animal cause of death. I think that is the perfect line with which to end the I just want to thank you all very much for coming today. Thank our panellists who will all be downstairs for the next half hour to sign books. Thank, thank you all you. so much. Thank you.